Welcome to episode number 15 of Colorado TechCast. So we started a social venture called Pocket Change. We're trying to help people support causes on social media in a whole new ways. It's a button that's going to sit on Facebook right next to the like, comment, and share. And it'll light up whenever you see a post about a cause. This could be literally anything. It could be an article from the New York Times about poverty. It could be a video about climate change. It could be a slam poem about racism. Whatever it is, our technology analyzes that post, that content. It determines what specific cause that post is talking about. It instantly matches that cause, thousands and thousands of charities for every cause, and find the one that we believe is most impactful at actually tackling the problem systemically and actually making progress towards fixing it. So it's a way of kind of targeting the moment when someone is genuinely inspired to act through your friends talking and conversation and real human stories and targeting that action and removing all the barriers for actually doing something. Before we get started, I want to talk about something really cool coming up. On Thursday, March 15th, between 5 and 8.30 p.m., the Colorado Technology Association is hosting the 12th annual Sea level at Mile High. Sea level at Mile High is CTA's largest fundraiser of the year, packed with sea level celebrity auctions, silent auctions, and the debut of the tech exchange to help CTA carry out its mission of fueling Colorado's economy through technology. It's the perfect opportunity to build relationships with peers, win business, and be introduced to tech companies and influential IT leaders in a setting really unlike anywhere else in Colorado. Check it out at clevelmilehigh.org. That's the letter clevelmilehigh.org. I hope to see you out there. Now, let's get started. Today, I'm speaking with Rain Aubrey. Rain is the CEO and founder of Pocket Change. Rain, how are you doing today? Really good. Thanks so much for having me, Trapper. Great. So Rain, I know when we were talking before, you were giving me the background of your story. Why don't you, uh, why don't you share that with our listeners? Sure. So I grew up in a little town called Milawani in Hawaii, um, born and raised there. Um, it is not the most entrepreneurial place. It's one of the most <laughs> isolated land masses in the world, so not great for connectivity. But um, I always was kind of really into entrepreneurship um, and, and kind of that scene, uh, even from a really, really young age, I would say. You know, I got into business, <laughs> I guess technically when I was about five or six, I started a lemonade stand and uh, dressed up as the flash and ran around my local pool selling lemonade and hired my friends to actually make the lemonade and like sit at the stand and I was kind of the front of it. Um, and uh, that was really, really fun. I never even knew that the that entrepreneur was something that you could be when you grew up. I never really knew how to answer that question. I would always say something like samurai or astronaut or something like that. Um, But I'd always been really into leadership and organizing groups of people to do and accomplish cool things. And I I launched a whole, I I tried to launch a whole bunch of things, you know, throughout elementary from dance classes where I charged a a nickel to teach people how to break dance to uh, in seventh grade, like looking at uh, trading currency to all kinds of fun stuff. But the first real business that I launched was in eighth grade. Um, I had a whole bunch of, I had eight giant tubs of Lego. Um, I'm a really big Lego nut, or I was when I was a kid. I made movies with them and everything, um, and I loved them, but I had stopped playing with them. So I decided I was going to try and sell it, and I went online, did a whole bunch of really cool market research, and found out that there was a real gap in you know where people were selling things. So like in terms of understanding the consumer, people were packaging things up not in the ways that kids wanted to receive them. So I kind of 
filled that and did that and sold through all eight tubs of Legos in like a month or two. Um, and then ended up having to, you know, start trying to source Lego from other places, you know, garage sales and friends and buying and all of that kind of stuff. And then packaging them up, pa- packaging them up and then marketing and selling and all of that kind of thing. And I did that. And then when that ended, I hopped over and I started kind of my first socially conscious venture. Uh, my friend had showed me these really cool bracelets that he'd made out of soda pop tabs. Basically, if you take them off and you weave them together, they make these really beautiful bracelets. And so I did that. I made a whole bunch of those and I sold out like, I don't know, 40 or 50 at my homecoming football game in like an hour. And I was like, okay, this is really cool. Um, and started making them more, hired a whole bunch of my friends to make them for me and, you know, did craft fairs and online and had a website and got interviewed and all of that kind of thing. Ended up being voted like one of the top five products in Hawaii that year. And then we also donated a portion of that money to recycling charities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was like a really, really fun venture for me. Um, and then I did a whole bunch of other things. I had a reselling business where I would buy things off Craigslist and eBay and garage sales and resell them online and did pretty well with that. But that was solo. I wanted to test my hand at like doing something like really by myself and I didn't really like that. Um, it was a lot of like me just figuring things out and sitting in my room on my computer and that was a lot less fun for me. So then my kind of last business all while in Hawaii, I launched these four in high school was a hoverboard company. I found that a lot of social media influencers had, were riding around on these two-wheel, like, self-balancing hoverboard things. And no one I knew, no one I'd heard of actually had these things, especially not in Hawaii. So I went online, and I started looking around, shopping around, found that there was about 40 manufacturers making these hoverboards, all different qualities and makes and that kind of thing. And started doing a whole bunch of research and (laughs) got a friend of mine who spoke Chinese to help me with it and help with negotiations and everything and set up all quality control standards and then made my first purchase. I bought one for myself and then I liked it and so I bought three more. I'd invested, you know, about like a thousand dollars and sold those three and bought six and then realized that I could really get my cost down if I started making bigger purchases. So pre-sold a whole bunch and bought a whole bunch and then kind of rolled from there and in the span of about three months, uh, went to selling about, I would say, probably 100 or 200 uh, hoverboards a week um, or every two weeks. We were bringing in, you know, truckloads of hoverboards and became the number one hoverboard seller in Hawaii. Got a whole bunch of press attention in Hawaii and also a little bit nationally selling, you know, all over the U.S. and all over Hawaii. And so that was really, really fun. But I had a very, very distinct moment. This was in my senior year of high school where I was sitting in my room. It was right, like maybe two days before Christmas. I love Christmas. Christmas is my all-time favorite holiday. And I've been, you know, just working my face off during the holiday season because, you know, that's the time to sell hoverboards. And I was sitting in my room, and I had just sold a whole bunch of hoverboards in cash, and I was counting all of this money, more money than I'd ever had in my life. And I was sitting there, and I was counting all this to put it into the bank. And I realized that if I was going to do business for the rest of my life, because I knew that I loved business, I love I love everything about business, the, the challenge and the overcoming and working with people and, you know, pushing yourself and all of that kind of stuff, I really, really loved. But I realized that if I was going to operate in the business world, I had to find some other motivation than money. Because what I realized when I was, as soon as I had, like, more money than I'd had before, it was kind of like 
oh, damn, this is it. Like, all I can do with this money is buy things that I don't really want that will make me happy for, like, a second, and mm -hmm. then that's it. And it was, like, a really, really powerful realization for me that I was, like, business one-on-one, the first thing they teach you when they walk into a business class is a business's purpose is to make profit for the shareholders. And I was, like, well, that's boring. Like, that's so boring. And so I decided that the next business I was going to run um, was going to be a social venture company. And so I decided that the Howard Ward company kind of ended and I was like, okay, um, now I have to figure out college. <laughs> and so through a really weird series of events, I'd been working at uh, like a venture capital uh, company out in Hawaii, a venture accelerator called Blue Startups. And one of my fellow interns there, he had been talking to a startup reporter earlier that day. And she was telling him all about how incredible the entrepreneurship and startup scene was in Denver. And I was like, yeah, 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 sure. And I was like, maybe Denver's worth applying. But I, I'd been really, really focused on just New York and California. Um, I was like, I'm going to the East Coast or the West Coast, nothing in between. Mm -hmm. um, but when he, told me, when, when he told me about Denver, I was like, okay, I'll throw it on my list of applications. I waited until like the week before applications were due to start my applications. So I was like, okay, I'll throw it on there. Worst comes to worst, you know, at least I'll have applied. I literally Googled schools in Denver, business schools in Denver, found the ones that met my financial need requirement. That was DU and applied and got in. They gave me an amazing scholarship package. And then I came here and started really doing all of my research about the city and the place and everything and realized how truly incredible Denver is as a startup and as a business community. The, the coolest thing about what's going on here is that we're really kind of in the early ages of something incredible. You know, San Francisco and New York, those places are already incredibly built up um, and it's a really, really big ecosystem. But here, we're just starting and we have everything in place to make something really spectacular. Plus, not only are all the businesses here and not only is there technology here, but people here really understand the value of having a lifestyle outside of sitting in your office working. Um, we work really, really hard here, but in our downtime, rather than just watching TV, we go ski a double black diamond. And that was the coolest thing for me. It was really the spirit of we just jump in and tackle whatever we want. Um, and we, we really just go at it. And that, I think, is super present in all of Colorado, but especially in Denver. Mm -hmm. If you walk around the city and you talk to people, no matter who they are, the highest level executive, a barista, whoever it is, they're really, really nice. And they have an energy about them and a, a vibrance about them that is super, super unique. Now, the other thing about the entrepreneurship community in Denver, and I'm obviously a huge fan of it, <laughs> is the social entrepreneurship scene in Colorado is I would say unparalleled. My personal belief is that we have solved a lot of the hard problems, you know, things like transportation and uh, communication and all of these things that make the lives for people who, by the rest of the world's standards, are incredibly rich and well off, even if we consider that middle class. We've solved a lot of their problems. Pretty much most of my daily struggle is solved. Sure, there's a couple of things that, you know, I could optimize, but at the end of the day, a lot of the problems that need to be solved have already been solved. So I think that the real opportunity is, okay, where are there other really big problems? So I can sit in my room and I can order food and I can, you know, call an Uber to take me downtown and I can talk to all my friends all across the world. And then there's someone on the other side of the world who literally doesn't have access to clean water. 
who literally doesn't know where their next meal is going to come from, where there is no, you know, political accountability, no political transparency, um, struggling with poverty. The, you know, climate change is rapidly, rapidly increasing, and we're seeing the effects of that all around the world. And those are huge, major problems. And if I know one thing about entrepreneurship is that entrepreneurs solve problems. That's the beginning of every pitch slide is what problem are you solving? And so I think that these huge, huge problems that everyone in the world faces are going to be our world's biggest opportunities. And so I think social ventures just make sense. I think it's just the way that business is going to go because there's not going to be a supply of other problems to solve. Um, and so I think that the social entrepreneurship scene in Denver and in Colorado um, is really spectacular. And that's one of the biggest reasons I would say to come here. So it sounds like you've been entrepreneurial from the get-go. Mm -hmm. What has been your inspiration for that? Mm -hmm. um, I think it has to come down to my parents. I got really, really birth lucky. Um, my dad has been an entrepreneur his entire life. He currently has his own business, a, a pool contracting business out in Hawaii. And my mom has always been a freelance writer and artist. Um, she's an international best-selling author. Um, so I have two parents that never really believed in the nine to five and proved to me that if you want to go do something, you can just kind of just go out and do it. Um, there isn't a rule book you have to follow and there isn't really a path that makes sense anymore. Um, and so I, I think I got really, really lucky. They definitely inspired me um, to think about other things. You know, in my family, the biggest thing was always to do what mm -hmm. makes you happy and to do what you love every day and to question um, and think critically about pretty much everything and to have a lot of fun doing whatever you do in the process. That was always the biggest thing. They always, always encouraged me that whatever I wanted to do, I could do. They gave me a lot of self-confidence and belief in myself and helped me kind of understand that, you know, I didn't necessarily have to do the traditional path um, because I knew that they would support me and they would love me regardless of what I did. And that, I think, was really, really spectacular. And that's kind of what brought me to it. Now, I, I think innately I'm also kind of born to be an entrepreneur. Like the, most five-year-olds aren't like hiring their friends and running around pools like selling lemonade. And I, I don't think that necessarily all comes from my parents, but I think my parents played the single biggest role in doing that. Plus, the first place that I read the word entrepreneur and heard about the word entrepreneur was a book my mom bought me in eighth grade, right when the Lego business was starting, called Start It Up. Um, and that was uh, kind of like my first real introduction to the business world. So I would say my parents were definitely my biggest inspiration. And I have a ton of role models and um, mentors and people that inspire me, but it all comes down to my parents. That's great. Yeah, I think having that strong foundation, that support from the get-go can really make or break an early stage entrepreneur. Now you're a student at DU. Uh, what are you working on right now? Sure. So we started a social venture um, called Pocket Change. Basically, we're trying to help people support causes um, on social media in a whole new way, support any cause that they care about. So what we're creating is it's a button that's going to sit on Facebook right next to the like, comment, and share. And it'll light up whenever you see a post about a cause. So this could be literally anything. It could be an article from the New York Times about poverty. It could be a picture that your aunt posted about her house that was destroyed in a hurricane. It could be a video about climate change. It could be a, a, a slam poem about racism, whatever it is. Um, our technology analyzes that post, that content. It determines what specific cause that post is talking about. Then it instantly matches that cause 
with the single most impactful charity tackling that problem. Um, so, you know, we have a team of researchers, we call them charity sleuths, that basically go in, we've built out this process, and they analyze um, thousands and thousands of charities for every cause and find the one that we believe is most impactful at actually tackling the problem systemically and actually making progress towards fixing it to solving it. Um, and so they click the button, it analyzes and determines the cause, matches it with the charity, and then instantly in two clicks, you can micro-donate 25 cents to $2 to that organization. So it's a way of kind of targeting the moment when someone is genuinely inspired to act through, um, you know, your friends talking and conversation and real human stories and targeting that action and removing all the barriers for actually doing something. That's really cool. So is this a browser add-on that sits on top of Facebook or how does the button appear? Yep. So uh, we're launching this month um, in February. It is a browser add-on, and we did that really, really intentionally. Uh, a browser add-on will allow us not only to integrate like very easily over Facebook, but also to go cross-platform quickly. So the really cool thing about what we're doing with Pocket Change is that once we've finished this technology, which we're almost there on, we can apply that technology across anywhere that someone is inspired. And they don't have to update. They don't have to download something else. They don't have to accept anything. It's already, once you download it on Facebook, you can instantly add it on Twitter, onto the New York Times, onto your email, onto messaging, onto, onto Google results, onto Netflix, onto Spotify, onto anywhere that you see content that you want to take action on. The goal is to remove that passive way that we're viewing content, that we're consuming content, and to make people understand how actually you can do something um, when you see something that makes you want to act. And so that's so we are a browser extension, um, and we're also looking at um, natively applying our technology to you know mobile apps and that kind of thing, but that's kind of the secondary step in our process. So what were some of the technical hurdles you came across? I know that micropayments have been a, something that people have been working on for several years. I mean, you've got the, the native transaction cost to mm -hmm. send money between here and there. Mm -hmm. At 25 cents a click, how efficiently can you get that money to the charity? Sure. Um, pretty efficiently. PayPal's got an awesome uh, micropayment fee structure now. Um, it's still not absolutely ideal, but it's close enough where it'll allow us to operate. So PayPal takes about 10% of the transaction, and we're working on getting that down by building out a user management system that makes bulk transactions. And so we're figuring all of that out, but I'm not the technical person. I'm a complete technotard, um, but I am the people person. Um, and so I you know, have found some really, really incredible people to be a part of our team. So probably the most difficult technical hurdle, which as of last week we have solved, is uh, our natural language processing technology. So that is the tech that allows you to be scrolling through and see anything and have it accurately determine which cause that is. So we're up to about 85% accuracy across any post, across any cause. Um, and that was a really, really challenging technical hurdle that we fought a long, long time to get to where we are today. But that was one of the, one of the trickiest ones. So you're a sophomore in college with full course load with this side startup that's I'm sure is consuming all of your time and energies outside yep. of class. How did you go about recruiting your team to, um, to backfill the technical needs that you had? Sure. So it's really, it was really all about being legit and who I was and who the company was before I even started talking to anybody else. Um, so kind of figuring out the direction that the company 
you know, needed to go um, and really, really setting that. I have a mentor named Drew um, who has given me an incredible piece of advice that a CEO's only job is to set and hold the vision of the company. Um, and so I think that that was kind of the first thing I did. And then it's a really, really exciting idea. You know, when you really start to dig into it and to get deep with it and think about it, um, the potential for this thing is truly awesome in the actual definition of the word. It's um, really, really, really exciting. And I think people now more, more and more are wanting to work on something that matters um, and something that has potential. Um, and so that was the biggest thing. And then in talking to people, letting them to kind of discover uh, what pocket change was and the potential of it on their own, um, which really helps increase buy-in. So not just slapping them over the head with how cool this thing is, but letting them realize it on their own. Um, and then that you get kind of a moment where their eyes get, you know, dinner plate size and they go, oh my God, like this thing could really, really change everything. Um, and that's what um, really creates a buy-in. Um, so it was because the other thing is we're not a funded startup. I haven't actively gone out and, you know, pursued funding. It's like we've had, you know, people say, you know, when you're ready, like, let us know. Um, and a lot of people are really, really excited about it. But I wanted to make sure that we bootstrapped as far as possible, as long as possible um, before we started doing that. So everyone on the team is unpaid um, and is equity-based. Um, and like the vast majority of our team, uh, charity sleuths, people who are doing the research, we've got a team of 22 awesome people. Um, those, everyone except the founding four, um, are unpaid and no equity. So it's people that really just believe in the vision and this company um, more than, you know, anything else and are willing to put their own time, um, commit their own time towards actually taking action on that. That's great. Sounds like you sold people on the emotional connection between what you're doing and how it impacts the world. I've seen a lot of your posts on social media, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. going to different pitch events. Now, when you're pitching a potential investor, do you have the same sort of strategy? It depends. So I think that like for me, I'll share my personal style. Some people this doesn't resonate with. Like some people um, really have to pitch like a different way. And that makes total sense. Like we're all different, but the way I've done it and, you know, we've won like nine or 10 different pitch competitions now and gotten like money from all of those kinds of things. Um, but the way that I kind of do it is at the end of the day, whoever's judging or, you know, potential investors or any of that, they're all people. So you have to kind of start off with uh, a story that makes people, you know, interested or in engaged. So you have to kind of target the emotional, uh, kind of emotional side of things. Um, but then you, you can't just stay there. You can't just stay in the big picture. You have to get to the nitty gritty and show people that you've actually figured out a lot of the details. So you start with the emotion um, and then we really start talking about, you know, the market and where things are going um, are the bets that we're taking on the market and the evidence that we have for those bets. Um, and then we get into kind of a little bit of the technical. We don't get super technical, um, but we get into the nitty gritty of like how we make money and, you know, what our team looks like and what technology we have and, you know, answering questions investors have to make it a little bit less scary. Um, showing, you know, that we very well know our competition um, and all of that kind of thing. Um, and then kind of ending on helping people really see the vision of where this thing is going and how it can be applied. You know, if you think about action, if you think about, you know, how many likes happen a day, how many shares happen a day, how many comments happen a day across all platforms, 
it's kind of mind-boggling how much people actually want to do something, but there's no technology out there to facilitate all of that. And so that's what we're building. And we want to make sure that investors walk away with, you know, a, a belief in what we're doing, an understanding of our business, and a trust in who's working on it. Um, I think those are kind of the three main components. You know, in my opinion, most investors bet on the jockey rather than the horse. They care about um, who's running it, who's the team that's making it happen. Um, it's definitely not me. I'm just one tiny little piece of it. Um, the real bulk of things are carried by the rest of our team. And so we want to make sure that investors feel confident in all of that. Um, and then also, you know, understand how, how everything works and where this thing is going. Um, at the end of the day, a pitch should not be an information session. A pitch should be the very first thing that gets you a coffee. That's all you're trying to do. You know, the, the pitch just excites people and you have to um, kind of make sure that that is the end goal. I've seen a ton of pitches where people get really into explaining things and projecting things and all of that kind of stuff. And that makes most people's eyes glaze over. You have to target the emotions and target, um, you know, where things are going and then also back up those, you know, big, bold claims um, and not bore people. And then in terms of presentation, um, it's all about comfort and confidence. You know, I, like confidence com is like everything when it comes down to, um, you know, anything from dating to taking a test to pitching to whatever it is. Um, and the trick with confidence is I'm a super, I'm not a confident guy. I'm, I'm a very self-conscious person. I have a, a, like a ton of personal barriers that I have to get over all the time. But the, the feedback that I get from people is that, wow, you look so confident up there and like ready to go. Um, and the kind of thing that I would, uh, like explain that with is, I, I would kind of make an analogy to like a rapper. If you've ever seen a, a rap show or watched, um, you know, like NWA or Eminem or something like that, when they're right about to go up on stage, they have this energy about them that's like, I'm going to absolutely destroy this. I'm going to crush this. A rap show is not that exciting. It's someone, you know, up on stage saying a whole bunch of words quickly to music. It's not that um, visually engaging or there's no band or there's no drummers or anything like that but it's all in the energy that that person comes with so like before every pitch competition I have a hype playlist that like I put on I view it as a game day you know I'm I'm suiting up to go out there and you know fourth quarter two minutes left um, and so I, I really really uh, think that you know you could have the best slide deck in the world and you could you know have like a great business idea but if you go up there and you're not you don't show that you are super legit in who you are and you don't exude confidence and you don't uh, prove to people that, you know, you're going to take this to the end, whether they get on board or not, um, you're, you're going to kind of fall short. And so I think that's one of the big things is kind of a, a comfort and a belief, like a, a knowledge that you're going to absolutely destroy this pitch competition and there's going to be nothing left when you leave kind of thing. Really psych yourself up for it, right? Yep. So what's on your playlist? Can you share a few songs? Yeah, sure. So there's a, there's a great one that's uh, called Dangerous by Royal Deluxe. Um, that's awesome. I love songs from uh, Magnificent Seven. It's like a cowboy movie. Shoot 'em up. Awesome, awesome movie. Um, it's got like a lot of like a doom, 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 doom. It's awesome. <laughs> um, and then another classic is Lose Yourself by Eminem. Uh -huh. Love that song. Absolutely 
incredible song. Um, and then I also really like uh, Grew Up at Midnight by the Maccabees. Um, it depends on what type of pitch I'm doing. If I'm doing like a, I want to crush this pitch competition, I won't play that song. But if I'm like doing like a speech or something where I have to be, you know, kind of like I'm trying to channel like an inspiring person, uh, I'll play Grew Up at Midnight by the Maccabees and that kind of gets me in the right headspace. Awesome. That's cool. Yeah. So quick side note. One of the first startups that I was working on was 14 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe maybe longer than that. And uh, I would put Lose Yourself on constantly a loop. It's definitely a classic song that's stuck around. It's a great one. It's an absolutely great one. So a lot of athletes, you know, in addition to, as you mentioned, rappers, psych themselves up before a game and they do a lot of visualization, you know, visualizing themselves, mm-hmm. pitching, being successful, you know, making the shot, whatever. Do you have any visualization routines that you run through before giving a pitch? sort of um so like obviously i will have practiced my pitch a million times i know exactly what i'm doing um when i get up there the biggest thing that i actually visualize is not necessarily me but i kind of imagine it um imagine myself in those shoes there's a scene in the movie steve jobs great movie one of my favorites um it's the last scene of the movie and he walks out and he's about to introduce the new computer that's going to take apple from like kind of a failing company to something great um, and he walks out and grew up at midnight is playing and there's like this scene where he like slowly walks out and everyone's like cheering and he like turns and he looks at the camera and, um, you know, it fades out. And so that's kind of the, the thing that I visualize is like the very end of the pitch, my closing line and having people just kind of be like, damn, wow, that's what I visualize. So it's not necessarily like up there killing the pitch or anything. It's that ending. Um, and then sometimes all you know like really really think through like answers that i want to have or or points that i want to make and like think about me like explaining that like as if i'm someone in the audience like watching that um what would i want to see how to how would i want to be perceived um and then i visualize all of that but i think at the end of the day it just comes down to that mindset of putting yourself in uh, i'm going to totally crush this so these pitch events are they for real money or are they just like a practice round done both both are super valuable. I think that you should pitch as much as makes sense. I don't think you should pitch constantly because then you're not doing any work on the business. But I also don't think you should never pitch because you get to meet cool people and get awesome feedback. Um, so I've pitched um, probably like seven or eight of the pitch competitions have been for money. And then like a couple other places I've pitched haven't. So like we've pitched with uh, Denver Startup Week and we've pitched with um, UPS. We won the most innovative pitch at UPS, national pitch competition. Um, pitched at, you know, like DU's annual pitch competition and an impact competition, all, all of them for money. Um, and, and then we've also pitched at like the alumni weekend here at the university or um, like pitchers and pitches at Galvanize or that kind of thing, things that aren't for money um, but are just an opportunity to get it out there. Usually at this point, I don't really like pitching um, if there isn't something that I like can really get out of it. So like if there isn't uh, like a perfect network or something that I want to see this idea or that I want to be able to talk to after. I usually don't um, pitch it anymore um, unless that's there or there's like some kind of financial interest just because like in my opinion, I think that a lot of advice that people give is 
like it's really good advice and there's there's a ton of different perspectives on how you should do things but at the end of the day you're going to find two experts that totally disagree and take opposite sides on any decision you make it's very easy to find that um, and so i think like it's worth listening to everyone but you have to be willing to kind of ignore all of it and just do you um, and and do what you believe in um, and so I think pitching is good, but just to be very conscious that just because someone is, you know, very well titled and very intelligent and has the best of intentions doesn't necessarily mean that they're right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Are you guys live and have been like alpha or beta testing this or is the big bang yet to come? The big bang is yet to come. We launched a beta test over the summer and raised a whole bunch of donations, tested a whole bunch of our assumptions. Um, and that was good. Um, but my whole like philosophy is I'm not a huge believer in the rapid iteration and pivoting kind of mentality. I, I think that's great if you want to build a business um, and exit for $10 million and you know make your investors happy. I think it makes way more sense to do that than kind of the way I'm doing it. But um, it, what I'm trying to do and what not not even what I'm trying to do. What Pocket Change is trying to do is build something that is really going to change how people interact with things. It's really going to shift, you know, trust in, you know, how people donate, how people support, and all of that. And I think in order to get people to really, really trust you um, and to set yourself up for the best chance at hitting that totally smash hit out of the park, it makes more sense to build something. Um, that's really, really good rather than launching something that you're not proud of and then uh, constantly iterating on top of it. Um, so, you know, we launched a beta over the summer. We tested it. We got some good feedback. Um, but we've spent the last six or seven months, probably about six months, um, totally reworking the product from the ground up, building out, you know, a team of charity selection people that uh, you know, are selecting, we're going to be launching with 200 to 300 different charities and causes enabled through our platform, two-click transactions, um, you know, 85% accuracy on natural language processing. Like, there was a ton of shortcuts that we could have taken to um, just launch something quicker, but we've been really, really intentional about building something great before, before putting it out into the world. I think that's smart. Just kind of shore up your code base before you go live, especially anything financially related. I mean, there's so many opportunities for things to go wrong. This cryptocurrency has taken off. There have been a lot of fairly well-known breaches that have really messed you know the whole cryptocurrency economy up because somebody's code base wasn't configured well enough and somebody was able to siphon profits off of that. So I definitely think you guys are taking the right approach there to making sure the product's solid before you go to market. Here's an interesting note on that really, really quickly. You're a very smart person. I really, really respect you. Um, this is a perfect example of listening to everyone and not be willing to ignore all perspectives because you have this perspective and I totally agree with you. Like we're totally aligned in that, but I've also had really smart people say, no, this is the dumbest thing in the world. You should just launch like with whatever you have and get it out into the market. And so I think both those perspectives are two diametrically opposed, you know, ways of looking at this. So it's worth hearing both things, learning what you can, and then doing whatever you're going to do. And to your earlier point, it's the job of the CEO to hear all the different perspectives and weigh them um, mm -hmm. and then determine the path forward. Mm -hmm. A lot of these social movements go viral very quickly. Mm -hmm. Do you have any growth strategies that you can share with us, like how you guys are planning on getting the browser add-on out there and known to the market? Sure. So our big way of doing things is, is that people want to 
especially with change, people want something to follow. So we so we have to have like a very clear path set up for people to get involved. One way that we're doing that is spending a lot of time on influencer outreach. You know, influencer marketing is not something new. It's not some crazy innovative idea. But in this business, it makes a lot more sense to do that. Um, because if a blog that you read or a podcast that you listen to or whatever it is, um, is touting how amazing pocket change is and talking about it, all of the followers of that are like, okay, my leader trapper is really about this whole pocket change thing. I'm going to hop in and follow that. And it's easy to, to do that. To be the first one is always a lot harder. So we're spending a lot of our time, you know, building out influencer marketing, you know, lists and that kind of thing to really be promoting it through social groups, um, rather than kind of one-on-one -on -one things. And then the other thing is, you know, the content, the whole like belief that we have at Pocket Change and that we verified is that people see things online and it makes them want to do something. So we have to produce content that makes them want to have the Pocket Change button. It's very easy to get someone to download something if they want to download it. It sounds that sounds really, really dumb and obvious. But if you can make content that makes people notice like, oh crap, like if only I had Pocket Change right now. That'd be awesome. And then have a link right there that makes it ridiculously easy to get pocket change. Then you're on the right path. So it's that. Um, so it's influencers. It's producing content that makes people want to take action. Um, and then also we're looking at some kind of referral program things. We haven't totally figured all of that out yet, the referral program side. Um, but the other two we're going super heavy on. As you were talking about your plans for marketing and talking about influencers mm -hmm. made me think of the book Smart Cuts by Shane Snow. I don't know if you've read it or not. It's a really great book. And I think you touched on a couple of the points that he brings up in the book. One is ride the waves. So like if you see a shift in society's thinking as a whole, be the first to ride that wave and kind of leverage that. And also another tactic that he talks about is hacking the ladder. So like you mentioned finding influencers. Mm -hmm. So rather than just going out and word of mouth through your own network, mm -hmm. getting people familiar with pocket change and, and kind of evangelizing that. Mm -hmm finding those key influencers who have much larger networks and have much stronger leverage when it comes to connecting with people and getting the idea out there. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think those are both really good examples that you're demonstrating through your, uh, through your efforts here. I agree. And the other thing on, on influencer marketing, I think a lot of people, when I say influencer, think of like someone with 500,000 Instagram followers. I would totally disagree. I think that deep following is a lot more important than breadth of following. And like, so I think that a mom who is, you know, president of the parent teacher association for her local school um, and has, you know, 100 likes on every Facebook post because everyone loves what she is doing is a far better influencer than um, someone who like is just hot on Instagram. Yeah, finding people that have true followers and mm -hmm. not just Kim Kardashian level followers or people who real industry leaders and, and can tap into people who can make big things happen. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's important. So what does the future of Pocket Change look like? Are you guys looking to keep this as a Denver-based startup? Or are you looking to, I know it, it's off, you know, off in the distance, but is there a larger organization that you could see acquiring you guys? Or what's your thinking in terms of uh, growth plans? So, I mean, I think it really comes down to, it really comes down to what will help us maximize our impact the most. Um, so like we've talked about, you know, a Facebook acquisition or something like that. 
Um, but didn't really resonate with that because then we would be purely a Facebook button. And that's not the goal of what we're doing. The really cool thing about it is how cross-platform we are. So there is definitely like possibility, you know, someone like a Google potentially could acquire us or um, a big foundation even or something along those lines. But the it's all really comes down to how can we better maximize our impact? Um, we do want to stay as a Denver-based startup. I have no intention of being like, once we hit a million donations, we're going to move to New York. Like, I think Denver is the New York of social venture. I, I don't think that there's anywhere better, arguably in the world, um, to have a social venture um, and to have a, a group of people working on it that is inspired and happy and loves to work and and is human-centered and, you know, good-focused. Um, and so... There's no intention of moving anything out or um, anything like that. And as far as acquisition goes, we're just going to build the best product we can and uh, try and help as many people as we possibly can. And I think that good things will follow. I think that's really cool. So, Rain, what are your future growth plans for the Pocket Change team? I know you mentioned there were, what, four core members now. Are you guys actively expanding your team? Or if anybody's interested, what kind of people are you looking for? Yeah, for sure. So we are actually currently looking for um, another developer to join our uh, founding team. We have two really, really stellar people. We have Apoorva, who's doing our natural language processing, and John, who's doing our front end. Um, But we really are looking for a full stack developer to kind of connect the two and amplify everything that we're doing. Um, So if anyone's interested in what we're doing, uh, the vision, uh, the technology, the growth, whatever, whatever it is that, you know, might attract you to pocket change. If you do want to get in contact or just even sit down and chat, you can email me uh, rain, R-E-Y-N at pocketchange.social, or you can just go on our website, pocketchange.social and fill out the contact form that they both go to me. That would be, that would be great. And then also another kind of send out there for anyone that's listening is if you're at all involved in the charity or philanthropy or impact space, I'd love to, you know, sit down and chat, talk, take you out for coffee, kind of pick your brain about the way we do things um, and see what you think. Um, I'd really love to get into the nitty gritty kind of technical and tactical of um, how we do charity selection and our beliefs around organizations. Um, And I'd love to get as much feedback as possible. That sounds like a really great opportunity, especially given the ground floor, something with so much potential. Yeah, no, it's it's really, really exciting. And, you know, like I said earlier, you know, the, the team's at 22 people now. Um, it's really, really growing. A lot of people around DU and also around the Denver community are getting really excited about what's about to happen. And so if you're interested in um, kind of doing something that has the potential to, I don't want to make claims that I can't back up, but I think one day I'll be able to actually back these up. If you're interested in being a part of what we believe to be you know, the next giant uh, platform, the thing that makes all the other platforms better, um, send me an email. Yeah, you can always leverage the uh, Steve Jobs, John Scully. Do you want to stay here and sell sugar water? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. I hope you're not selling sugar water, but uh, if, you, if you are, definitely send me an email. Love to send people your way. I, I think what you guys are doing is really cool. Is there anybody that you'd like to recognize as you know, helping you with the venture so far? For sure. The, the first thing that I want to say, and I know a lot of people say this all the time, but they say it because it's true. We've talked a lot about me this whole interview, but this, this business is really not about me. It's, it's about the people that are working on it and committing to it and the sweat and time and you know just pure effort that people are putting into making this thing a reality. So I want to give a huge shout out to everyone um, on our team. 
um, they work much harder and, and with much more passion than I've ever seen. Um, and so that's really, really incredible. And I want to make sure that they know it. And they do. Um, but any opportunity I can give to give them a little shout out, I definitely will. And then I also want to give an incredible shout out to one of my dear, dear friends and close mentors. Um, his name is Drew Lawrence. Um, and Drew is um, truly an incredible person. He's helped us through a lot of the people struggles and management struggles and hiring struggles that we've gone through. So Drew is incredible. If you ever see a guy named Drew Lawrence, tall guy with a beard, go buy him a beer because he's awesome. Ren, it's been great having you on Colorado TechCast. I think what you're doing with Pocket Change is really cool. And Really loved your stories of early stage entrepreneurship, the lemonade stand, the Legos, the hoverboard, and now working on something that can truly change the world. I wish you guys the best of luck, and I look forward to hearing great things in, in the future. Thanks so much, Trapper. It's been an absolute pleasure being on here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Colorado TechCast. To hear more episodes of this program, visit our website at coloradotechcast.com. There you'll find everything you need to know to subscribe to the show. We're also on Twitter, at COTechCast, and love hearing your comments, so keep them coming. I'm Trapper Little, and I'll talk with you soon on the next episode of Colorado TechCast.